we're going live and we'll give everybody a couple minutes to get logged on and join us for another live segment. How you doing today, Stuart? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Doing well. I'm doing all right. I'm getting over yet another cold. Yeah, two trying, colds in two months. Trying to stay away from you. I know. I don't blame you. I'd stay away from me too. More, more so than normal. I know, right? You look very summery today, though. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right, so let's get started. Welcome to the Stam Fight Win live stream, Real Lawyers, Real Answers. The subject of today's broadcast is successor trustees. So we're going to be talking about different aspects of what happens with uh, trusts when a new trustee comes into office and the old trustee either is deceased or resigns or is removed or something along those lines. So we have a bunch of questions that we're going to get to, but let's start with a case and we'll start with our breaking news and this is an appellate case that comes to us out of the fourth appellate district and it's Morgan versus Superior Court and let me give you the uh, site for this this is 23 Calap 5th 1026 so that's 23 Calap 5th 1026 and this was uh, decided uh, last year and it's a case that has to do with what happens when a successor trustee takes over a trust, the old trustee goes away, and the successor trustee now wants the attorney's file. So there was an attorney who was representing the prior trustee in, in their office and their duties as trustee. The new trustee takes over, says, let me have those trustee files. And of course, the attorney naturally is going to say, oh, attorney-client privilege, I can't hand it over to you. But there's something unique when it comes to trust, which is when an attorney is representing a trustee, that attorney is representing essentially the office of trustee. And whoever occupies that office of trustee is going to be the one who has the right to the attorney-client privilege, which means that when a new trustee comes into office, they have the right to get the file and the communications and everything as that the old trustee had with the attorneys. Is that a correct statement of it, you think, Stuart? That's no. correct. Okay. You're so, doing great. You just keep going. All right. I'm going to keep powering through then. So in Morgan, that was the, the topic. So you had a new trustee come, that came in. Uh, Beverly was let's, let's, the mom. Let's, let's set this up just a little bit more for people yeah. who don't do this every day. So obviously there was a trust and there was a trustee. That's right. And that trustee had hired a lawyer to help them with the quote-unquote trust administration. They the, the activities that have to take place as a trustee to, uh, to properly administer a trust by its terms. That's right. And <clears throat> this attorney, let's call them attorney one, attorney one had sent invoices and, and uh, had received payments from the trustee over a period of, let's just call it several years. And so there's a lot of invoices and I'm assuming that lawyer one was very descriptive in the description of what he would do in each one of these invoices, you know, most lawyers put the date down and put down what they've done and how much it's going to cost. Like a detailed description of services that a, they did, yeah. Right, and so there's there's this issue where there's this lawyer one has a, a history of invoices that have shown everything that he's done for this trustee during the during that part of the trust administration. Mm -hmm. Then, for whatever reason, this trustee is no longer in office, and a new successor trustee comes in. They have their own lawyer, lawyer number two. Mm -hmm. And that lawyer number two needs to continue the trust administration and is saying, 
hey, lawyer number one, send over everything, because we're not snoops, although maybe a little bit, but <laughs> we just want that so we can go through everything and make sure that... See what's happened, see what's been said, see what still needs to be done. Right, and so lawyer number one here misreads several cases out there and decides that he's going to put his feet in the ground or heels in the ground and not turn over invoices and things like that, and, and you can right. pick up the story from there. Right, and so this is where, uh, and this is, had to do with two siblings, uh, Tom and Nancy, and Nancy was suing Tom, Tom was trustee, Tom gets removed by the court. And one of the reasons he gets removed by the court is because he's using trust monies to fund his own personal defense in the lawsuit, which is a big no-no. And what was that? Was that she made a claim against him for breach of fiduciary duty? She did. There was a trust contest. There was breach of fiduciary duties. There was removal. And he was using money to pay for his own personal defense, not just trust defense. So the problem is, is when you have a trustee who's also a beneficiary, you have one person wearing two hats. They're trustee, but they're also beneficiary. So some of the things that they're doing is appropriate for a trustee to do. Some of the things is not. That's only appropriate for a beneficiary to do. So for example, if I'm arguing as a beneficiary that I should get 50% of the trust rather than 40% of the trust, that's a beneficial argument that that benefits me personally. And if you were making a personal argument as a trustee, do you use trust funds to pay the lawyer or do you use your own funds to pay the I'm lawyer? I'm supposed to use my own funds because it doesn't benefit the trust as a whole. So anytime you're using trust money as a trustee, it's supposed to be being used to go, go towards things that benefits the trust as a whole, meaning everybody equally and all those trustee duties that they have. So I haven't read the case like you have, but I'm starting to anticipate that maybe the descriptions in these invoices from the lawyer may show that all the money didn't go for trust administration expenditure. That's what I'm thinking, yes. I mean, that's why they're fighting so hard to keep the invoices from coming out. And what happened was after... Uh, at first, the court didn't remove Tom as trustee and said, no, he can stay as trustee as long as he doesn't use any trust funds for his own personal defense, his own personal attorney's fees, um, and as long as he doesn't in any way borrow any money from the trust while he's doing this, and he doesn't take on any loans on behalf of the trust while he's doing this. And the court also required him to file an accounting to show what has happened with the money. So the court is seeing that there's this inherent conflict of interest that you do see when a parent nominates one of their children to be trustee and also a beneficiary. Right. And some of the courts will bend over backwards. Some judges just summarily remove the person. Yeah, right. But other judges will say, no, mom and dad wanted that. But what I am going to order you is if you're going to do anything from a personal standpoint, that's on you. If you're doing anything for the trust, well, you can do that. And, hey, by the way, do an accounting so we can see what you've been doing with the money. Yeah, and it's funny because I think the court was trying to accommodate the fact that they're going to let the trustee stay as long as he plays by the rules, which the trustee should have gotten a hint of, oh, okay, so I just need to play by the rules. Well, one of the things the court required is file this accounting. When, when the trustee got around to file the accounting, the court said that um, it was so inadequate that its filing appears to be for the sole purpose of paying lip service to the court's order. Ooh, ouch. Okay, well, as soon as you read that, you know that you just crossed the line with the court, right? You went from the court trying to give you the benefit of the doubt to the court now saying, okay, I've had enough. And so at once the court said that, the court on its own motion removed the trustee. <laughs> You're out of here. New trustee comes in. New trustees, which are professional trustees, they want um, all the invoices, billing statements, fee agreements, 
all that sort of thing that you mentioned before. And the court said, yes, you should get that. Go ahead and, and hand that over. You know, the attorney number one, as you put it, should be handing that over. And the court was very precise about this. They wanted attorney one to hand that information over to the new trustees only because the new trustees are the ones that have the attorney-client privilege. And then what the new trustees did with it was their business. But the court didn't want attorney one handing it off to the beneficiaries because they don't have attorney-client privilege, or even to the attorney for the new trustees. Just give it to the new trustees. That's who should have it. And so the minute order was actually quite clear. It said all invoices, billings, fee agreements, copies of checks, wire transfers used to pay for any services should go over to the new trustees only. So just give it to their to their service. So now that didn't happen, right? So there was a minute order. Obviously, it didn't happen. So now they come back in on an ex parte, and that's where you get this dialogue in this case. And it's kind of a funny dialogue. So I'm going to play the part of uh, of the attorney one, which is the old trustees council, and you play the part of the court. And there's, there's a lesson to be learned here, so let's just go through this real quickly. So I'm showing up, and you know the person, the new trustees are saying it's extremely important that we get this information. We have to get it, and we have to get this information. And so you're the court. So I look at attorney one, who's Mr. Peck, is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm the court. I just want to point out for the video that I'm the court, I'm the yes. judge. Yeah. Will, you please, will you please make your appearance? <laughs> Keep um, Mr. Peck appearing on behalf of. Yeah. So the question that the court says is, how soon can you provide the records? To which the attorney replies, uh, which records, Your Honor? And the, you can already tell the court's getting a little tense here. The ones I ordered Monday. Right. So I'm sorry. He wouldn't be laughing. I mean, I'm laughing. Either. The ones you ordered Monday, question mark? You mean my invoices, Your Honor? The court... Yes. Mr. Peck, Peck, yeah, that's correct. So we'll have a formal order today, correct? Question mark. We're going to have a formal order as to everything the court has ordered for Monday and today? Okay, and right here, I just want to point out the court took a heavy breath. <laughs> it's not in the record, but the court took a heavy breath. <laughs> that happened. Yes, okay. okay. And the court says, the minute orders right here, counsel, we'll be happy to give you a copy. For your attorney's fees, counsel, all invoices, billings, fee agreements, copies of checks, and wire transfers used to pay any of the attorney's fees and costs herein. Oh, and also, Your Honor, as part of that, when the court said on Monday it only goes to Mr. Glowacki, which is the uh, trustee, new trustee's attorneys here, because obviously uh, Mr. Garrett, and then he and, trails off. And because the court breathes heavily again <laughs> and says it's in the order. Well, but is that in the order? The court, I mean, this is, this, this is one of the most patient judges I have seen on a record here. I mean, yes, it's in the order. So then he tries, again, there's a question. It only goes to the attorney for the trustee, but obviously that attorney wants to see those because that's what he just said. I have ordered it, I mean, this is the patience of Job. The patience of Job. I don't even know who, what judge this is. We need to find out who this judge is. Uh, I have ordered it only goes to Mr. Glowacki at this time. I will order that for Monday. And then there's the other counsel pipes in, and so then it goes back to the court. So when can you have those available? And she's directing this question to Mr. Peck, attorney number one. Mr. Peck goes, when I get the order, Your Honor? Uh, actually, it wasn't a question, was it? Oh, yeah. yeah. When I get the order, Your Honor. Yeah. <laughs> so now he's, he's, he's being a little yeah. smart with the court. Yeah. We're giving you the minute order today, counsel. That's fine. 
So, when can you have it available? I would say that I could go ahead and organize things in terms of like maybe a week from July 4th, something of that sort, the week of the week of the 10th. This is Shakespeare. This is Shakespeare. <laughs> this is so good. The court says, I mean, the court is bending over backwards for this guy, and the court says, all right, Monday the 10th. How about the 12th? <laughs> so, okay, two weeks from today, everything will be turned over. When you say everything... <laughs> You're talking about the invoices, not the production of the entity's documents. The court, I'm talking about everything in the minute order that I made on Monday. Okay. That's all the invoices from his office, yes. Mr. Peck. Yes. We have ordered and you've agreed that all your documents will be provided by July 12th. That's correct, Your Honor. So, I mean, you took almost three pages to get to the final answer, which is, when are you going to hand these things over that I already ordered? I mean, what? <laughs> this you, you go on and on many times about how hard it is for attorneys to just answer the question. So this was Judge Kim R. Hubbard, I believe, I, I'm assuming, because that's the appellate uh, who the appeal is from. Yeah. She's out of uh, Orange County. Yeah. And you're right. She was very, very patient. I mean, the issue was pretty simple, handed over. And there was even a minute order that said what was supposed to be handed over. And yet you have an attorney who's trying to evade the question. And it's so obvious. And you have an attorney that will ultimately say, well, Your Honor, we'll wait till we get that order, even though the judge has already ordered it. Here it is. Now when? I mean, this judge really was patient. But what does that say about the case? I mean, the thing, the thing that I got as soon as I read that, and I wasn't there, but just reading the transcript, I can imagine how it went. It probably went the way we played it out. But the first thing I think of is, wow, this old trustee is in a lot of trouble because you wouldn't be this evasive if there wasn't a problem. So there must be a problem. And this is the problem, I think, with trying to be evasive with the court, is that, look, if you've been ordered to do something, just do it. I mean, at some point, you're just going to have to do it. Now, they ended up not turning over the documents because they filed this appeal. Right. Uh, and then when it went up to the appellate court, the appellate court said, it's very basic uh, tenet of trust law that when a new trustee takes over, they're entitled to the legal file. They inherit the attorney-client privilege. And there's actually a provision in this trust, which I hadn't seen before, Stuart, where apparently the trust said the successor tr or the initial trustee is not required to hand over attorney-client privilege document to a new trustee. That's what the trust terms said. And the appellate court said that's against public policy. We're not going to enforce that because it would prevent a new trustee from being able to see if there was any damage or harm done by the old trustee if we allowed that to happen. And of course, they cited to the seminal case of Moeller, which is M-O-E-L-L-E-R, Moeller versus Superior Court from 1997. Cite for that is 16 Cal 4th, 1124. And that's the seminal case that we all think of is Moeller is the case that said, the privilege, attorney-client privilege, stays with the office of trustee, and the new trustee is allowed to pick up that privilege and get to the document. So ultimately, the court said you have to hand over the documents, and the court went so far as to say, look, if you think that you're using an attorney and some of the advice you're getting is trust advice, but some of the advice you're getting is personal advice as a beneficiary, then it's your duty as a trustee to take affirmative steps to distinguish the personal advice from the fiduciary advice. And there's one way to really satisfy that duty better than anything else, right? And that is to have separate lawyers. 
and we do that all the time. Right. And so have a lawyer representing you as trustee, have a different lawyer, a different law firm representing you as a beneficiary, and then it becomes very easy to distinguish which advice was personal and which advice was trustee advice, and the court says it's the trustee's duty to make that determination, to make that affirmative step to distinguish those two. And as a trustee, you have a lot of duties, but that's one of them. So I thought it was an interesting case just because it does reinforce the attorney-client privilege issue with successor trustees, but it also gave us a lot of insight to, here's a judge who's trying to help this, like give the trustee a benefit of the doubt, and the trustee just seems to be shooting himself right in the foot, right. left and right. right. Yeah, this is a this is a symposium on how not to appear in front of a judge if you're this one lawyer. And I don't know this lawyer. I feel bad for him actually because they were probably you know they're feeling like they were on the hot seat. But right, I mean it's better just to be frank with the judge and be clear and hope for the best. Especially if you know you're going to take an appeal. I mean you might as well. I mean even if you don't know you're going to take an appeal. I mean just I mean it is what it is. The judge has already ordered it. it you're not doing yourself any favors by being evasive. Yeah, one thing I've learned in reading appellate opinions is you don't want to be the lawyer that's in a transcript that ends up in an appellate opinion <laughs> because I've seen this time and time again. It's never good. And it's almost like the appellate court. You know they're just so amused by these interactions yeah. they have to put it in here because they figure that maybe if they write it people won't believe it happened. So they got to put the record in there to show you what happened. Yeah, because it's not very often that you actually see the transcript in the appellate opinion. Right. Like they actually pulled this out of the transcript and cited it in their brief. That's right. The appellate court did. So. Right. As, as an aside, before we get to our questions, there was one other case, and, and not to get into the details of it, but there was another case where the transcript uh, was cited, and I think it's called Stewart versus Colonial Life Agency. Yes. Yes. And that's the one where we take depositions a lot. And one of the things we run into with young, middle-aged, and older attorneys that are defending depositions is if they don't like the question that we're asking their client, what will they do? I'm instructing you not to answer. And, do not answer that question. Yeah, and there's no, there's no privilege they're pointing to. It's not like we're asking them what conversations did you have with your lawyer once you hired your lawyer because that we, we aren't entitled to. And we're just asking the question in the politest manner possible and they're not answering so we're not being overly harassing in the deposition and in that case it was great also because the appellate court took the transcript and it, and it's it's a fun one to read we'll do one of those one of these times yeah. uh, on depositions but just for younger and middle-aged and older lawyers in california you cannot direct your client to not answer my questions unless i'm invading the right to privacy or my question is just so overly harassing that you have to suspend the deposition. Those are the only two reasons you can tell people not to answer, your clients not to answer my questions. That's just a little bit, that's my two cents. You can go look at Stewart versus Colonial Life if you, if you like, but it would make depositions go so much better right. if, if they would just know the rules and then we don't have to go to the court and file a motion to compel and then, right. you know. If you object, insert your objection. Insert your objection. But yeah, don't order them not to answer unless it is a, Harassing question, or unless it's right. a privilege. Right. Sorry, that was a little aside. We'll do a we'll do a show on that at some point here. I know. Yeah. Or put you up on your soapbox and yes. let you go. <laughs> All right, Manisha. So Manisha's with us today. Kayla is on vacation. She's lost somewhere in Montana or something. I think. Yes, somewhere. Yellowstone. In Montana. Come on, Manisha. Come on up to the screen. Don't be shy. <laughs> Where is she? Uh oh, number uh -oh. four. Ah, there, there we go. go. There she there is. is. Hey, Manisha. <laughs> I was Not clicking so the wrong side hey, of the mouse. Don't look at us. Don't look at us. We don't want oh, people sorry. to know. Yeah, you gotta act like you. I'm in another place. <laughs> I'm in another location. See, Kayla makes it look easy. So. She does. Kayla does a great job. So I had a question because you both did a fabulous run through of the scenario with two attorneys and and a patient judge. So what would that look like with two attorneys and a not so patient judge? <laughs> 
That's usually the case, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, I I think judges like this. I actually like I I actually appeared in front of this judge a couple times, and um, I don't remember the demeanor of this judge. But in reading this, I think she did a good job. She she gave the 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 lawyer the benefit of the doubt, even when he was being rude and acting like he didn't understand her. Um, I've seen judges just dress down uh, lawyers for this type of behavior, and they have a right to. And and judges, if you think about it, they are constantly hearing quarrels from what I call children in a sandbox arguing over the toy truck that's in the sandbox. And they hear this argument day in and day out for all of the hearings that are in front of them. They get tired of it. They get tired of lawyers not knowing what they're asking for or acting like they don't understand what the court's asking them to do. And so sometimes you can understand why judges are a little curt with lawyers. Yeah, and I've had judges be curt with me. I don't like it, but uh, I thought this judge did a great job. Uh, they, the judge probably could have been a little bit uh, more straightforward if, if she'd wanted to, but uh, she was nice to him. Also, the trustee would have been removed much faster. I mean, uh, you know, and this was a patient judge. Most judges would be like, you're out of here. Right, that's true. Yeah. So my follow-up question is, what's the reason for uh, for the resistance? What, the, from Bet the between the attorneys. Oh, from the lawyers? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, because you don't want to answer the question. I mean, it, the answer to this question in this particular case, when this court said, are you going to hand over the documents? Yes. The answer needed to be yes. And what you're seeing is a lawyer who doesn't want to hand over the documents. But they've already been ordered to do it. And so they're trying to play this game of, well, which documents are that? I'm not sure. Where's the order? Which is not going to win. You're not going to win on that argument because, you know, obviously you're just making the court mad and you're not going to get there. But um, but it, the reason why lawyers have such a hard time in court is because they won't just answer the question because they don't like the answer. And a lot of that comes to preparation. If you're prepared for the hearing and you understand that, yes, this is my answer, but here's the rationale behind it, you know, then you're much better able to be direct with the judge. And that's what judges want at the end of the day. Let's get on with this. And you, I, I agree. And, and the one thing that I would say for any young lawyer or even older lawyer out there that wants to enhance their skills a little bit, go to the Supreme Court website and download some uh, oral arguments from the Supreme Court. Not that you're going to be an appellate lawyer when you're in a trial, uh, trial uh, court arguing over a, a motion or something, but listen to how the lawyers there, those are the best, they're supposed to be the best lawyers at least, you got nine really smart people asking well, definitely you. Definitely very high lawyers. Yes, yeah. there's. You got nine justices asking you very smart and very pointed questions. Every single word matters in those questions. And listen to how the lawyers respond. And those are hard questions to answer. So that's a good place to go to just to see how other lawyers, good lawyers, will answer judges. Well, and you always say that lawyers need to know. You know, tell the judge what you want and what authority you have for asking for it. That's right. And if you're not prepared to ant to say those two things, then you're not ready to go to court. Well, and I got that. I, that's not something I thought of. That's from Judge Matt Fisher out of Riverside many years ago when I was a young lawyer in front of him, and he told me, look, you know, you, you got to ask me what you want, and then you got to tell me, do I have authority to do it? Right. And I remember he had uh, 120 people on his calendar one day, and I sat there with that in mind, and I watched every lawyer get up, mm -hmm. and almost everyone the judge would say, what do you want? Or what can I help you with? And they would say, well... The, right. And they'd give this big, long story. And in that big, long story, there was nothing about what they wanted, nor was there any legal authority, authority or precedent to support right. what they were asking for. And, you know, you look at Judge Judge Matt Fisher up there, and you're just thinking, how does he not just pull his hair out? Because right. he just wants to know, what do you want, and can I do this for you? Or when they ask, what's your authority? And they say something like, 
The probate code. <laughs> the probate code, yeah. That's not particularly helpful. Well, we, yeah, one opposing lawyer who will remain nameless out of Orange County that we've gone against twice now, and she argues, when she argues in court, uh, she basically says anything she wants and then says, and that's in the probate code, <laughs> without giving a cite to the probate code or anything. So, so at least give me a chapter. Give me close. <laughs> What's up next, Manisha? Well, we've got some questions. And uh, the very first one is, my mom has dementia and my ill stepfather is trustee of their revocable trust and he's unable to manage the trust due to his illness. How do I begin managing the trust if my stepfather still wants to maintain control even though his illness renders him unable? This is the, uh, this is the same case that happened uh, with the, who's the guy that owned the basketball team? Oh, yeah, the Clippers. Yeah, the Clippers, right. Name escapes me. It's right on the tip of my tongue. But um, it was the same thing. I mean, his he and his wife were co-trustees of a trust. Is it Paul? No. Oh, gosh. His name's escaping. How can his name be escaping? Go ahead. Yeah. Was, yeah. And anyway, they both uh, are co-trustees of a trust. He uh, supposedly lacks capacity. She wants to sell the basketball team to... Um, we're not yeah, doing well, yeah. Microsoft. Wow, we're doing great. This is fantastic. We obviously are lacking capacity. We're, we're doing a clinic on Steve that real time. Steve Ballmer, yeah. For $2 billion, right? Yeah. He sells it. So she wants to sell to Steve Ballmer. He doesn't. So who has authority under the trust to make that decision and to allow the sale to go forward? And so what happened was she had the husband go, Sterling? Donald Sterling. Donald Sterling. She had Donald Sterling go to a doctor and got a declaration from the doctor that he lacked capacity. Right. Well, under the trust terms, it said if you have a statement from at least one treating physician, then that person will be deemed to have lacked capacity under the trust. And then, of course, Donald wanted to fight it, and so they went to court. And the interesting thing is the judge said, I'm not here to determine whether or not Mr. Sterling lacks legal capacity as a matter of law the way you would in a conservatorship, because that's not what's before me. Right. The only issue before me is this trust provision, because the trust has a mechanism for when somebody can no longer act. And that mechanism is, if you have a note from a physician that says that they are not capable of acting, right. then they are deemed to not act, and they are essentially removed from office. Right. And the court said, well, you have a letter from a uh, treating physician, you therefore have been removed from office, and so now the wife is the sole trustee, and she was able to finish up the sale. And so that's really what you have even in this situation, is you have somebody who is too ill to operate as trustee, but they don't want to admit it. Well, you'd have to look at the trust terms. Do the trust terms allow for some standard as to when somebody loses capacity? Most of them do. And it'll either be, usually it's one letter, or sometimes it's two letters from a treating physician. If you can get that, then that person now is no longer acting as trustee. By the trust terms themselves, they effectively are removed from office and the new trustee can take over. Then the question becomes, well, how do I get them to see a doctor when they won't go? That's a whole different issue. But that essentially is the answer to that question is you have to follow the trust terms. And a little bit more practical view of it would be be very careful because yeah. if you're a beneficiary under the trust, and you tick off dad. That's revocable. And he's got the power to revoke his half or maybe even his and mom's half, because right. that can happen in a minority of cases. 
you may be kicked out of a trust. Now, you can argue down the road he did that at a time when he lacked capacity or he was unduly influenced by somebody. But just be careful. We call this, if you're going to shoot at the king or the queen, make sure you hit. Right. And if you don't, you're going to tick them off and you're they, out. they may take you out of their trust. Right. So if they're elderly and they're the sunset years and they're not going to be on this earth that much longer, uh, not that I want to look at this in, in such a... Uh, a sad way, uh, maybe it's better just to let sleeping dogs lie and then clean up the mess when they've passed away. Well, and going back to the Dolan Sterling case, the standard that is required for you to no longer act as trustee is not necessarily the same standard that would mean that you can't change the trust terms. So just because the trust says you're removed as a trustee once you have this letter from a doctor, right. that may not be enough to say, oh, but you don't have capacity to amend the trust. Right. This, this always comes back in my mind to taking the driver's license away from grandma or grandpa or from your mom or your dad. They are never going to voluntarily say, you know what, you've, you've brought me good counsel. Here are my keys. I will never drive again. <laughs> I certainly won't. I mean, this is something, yeah, this is something that they've been doing for as long as they can remember. And so when you come to them and tell them they're not able to do something any longer, and right. it, it maybe they're, that they're, they can't. You have to be very delicate about that because these people have feelings and they still have capacity, <laughs> right. need enough capacity to say, I'm not leaving you anything in my trust or my will, so you want to be careful on how you approach this. That's right. Yeah, it's tricky. Follow-up question, is it any different if it's a will? Well, the main difference with a will is the wills don't technically come into existence until after somebody dies. So there's nothing for you to do. If, so, if dad's alive and ill and can't manage his own affairs, a will doesn't do anything. A will is, is really just lying dormant until somebody dies and then it goes into effect. As opposed to a revocable trust, which is sometimes called a living trust, meaning it's created during life. And assets within a revocable living trust can be managed when somebody lacks capacity a new trustee can step in and they can take over the power of the trustee and manage the trust assets that doesn't happen with a will so in a will you'd have to go straight on to conservatorship if somebody lacks capacity and they need help managing during their the lifetime assets. during the lifetime and then if they die then you can submit their will to the court and ask the court probate. to yeah right yeah. bring it to life and then you inherit yeah it's funny because a will is not actually a will until a court orders it as a will after somebody dies. And a lot of people don't understand that, but that's how it works. Right, the next question is, my sister was removed as a trustee due to misappropriation of funds. Now she's a successor trustee for the bypass trust. What should I do? <laughs> Try to get her removed? <laughs> um, I mean, assuming it sounds like it's from the same trust, um, so there's a survivor's trust and bypass trust? Right, and then I would simply just, uh, I would petition the court for instructions and say, uh, or petition to remove her based upon the previous removal if those facts are still in place. Yeah, and it could be that there's misappropriation in the bypass trust as well, so that would be a basis for removal. Or if she's already been removed for misappropriation, that would suggest that this is somebody who's not capable of properly managing a trust anyway, so that would be another grounds for removal. You're going to have a pretty good shot at getting a judge to suspend her Right. And then, you know, leave the determination for removal for down the road, although the case will probably settle before that determination ever mm -hmm. gets made. But judges tend to be pretty uh, quick to move when there's financial abuse taking place of any kind. If you have proof of it. Yes. Like you can't just go in and say this person's misappropriating assets. Right. But if you actually have some bank statements that show misappropriation, something to back it up. Right. Yeah, judges tend not to be shy about that. Right. I agree. 
Sorry. Is it it possible for the successor trustee to transfer assets into their name? So when we're talking about successor trustee here, we can talk about really a successor trustee, just another trustee. Is there a new trustee? So let's just talk about trustees generally. Trustees can do anything that they want to the trust. They essentially are the legal owners of the assets of the trust. They're not the beneficial owners. There's some beneficiaries out there that are named. Maybe they're part of that group of beneficiaries, but uh, let's assume that they don't own everything in the trust as a beneficiary. Uh, They can go out and do anything they want to those assets. They can mortgage them, they can sell them, they can take loans against them. And in many cases, you'll have these general provisions in a trust that will allow the trustee these very broad sweeping powers. What then keeps a trustee in line to make sure that they're doing all of these things in hopeful good faith? And that is the duties that are on a trustee under the probate code and the duties that are also outlined in the trust document itself. And and by the way, there's some of those duties that are against public policy. We won't go down that route. The probate code is going to be the holy grail. They're going to have to follow every duty that's outlined in the probate code. And then anything else that's in the trust, that's going to be a bonus. You'll look at the terms there to see what else they need to follow. But in answer to this question, it's scary. This is why they're called trustees. They're in a position of trust. Uh, They uh, are going to be managing assets, and they have legal title of those assets, meaning they can do a lot of good things with those assets. They can also do a lot of bad things with those assets. Yeah, I know. I like how you say it's trust. It's in the name. It's kind of in the name. Um, The interesting, and from a practical perspective, yes, a trustee is constrained by the the trust document and trust law, but as a practical matter, the only people who are going to keep them on the straight path are the beneficiaries, somebody coming up and demanding that they do the right thing. And a lot of times people say, well, who keeps these trustees in line? You know, what? who can I call to keep these trustees in line? No, you don't. It's you, the beneficiary, that keeps them in line. Nobody else. There's no governmental agency. There's no district attorney. There's no uh, county agency that's going to help you keep these trustees in line. You have to keep them in line. And so when they're doing wrong, you have to take action. And that's why you also should be informed. Like, get information from your trustee. Pay attention. See what's going on. So, Keith, and I think this this, this example might make help might help clarify this. So if you have $50,000 in your bank account, that's your money, it's 50,000. How come there's not all these rules about how you're supposed to manage your money? Because <laughs> it's mine. Because it's yours and I, you, you tend to take care of what's yours, especially when it comes to money. I do and not only that, but my money, I'm both the legal owner and the beneficial owner, all in one of my money. So I have all the rights. Whereas with trust, take that whole bundle of rights as they call it and split them in half and give half the rights to the trustee and the other half to the beneficiary. And, and now let's see if I can bring that full circle and let's say that same $50,000, I'm now trustee of it over you. It's not really my money, I'll never see it. I will manage that differently than my own money. Yes. And that's why these harsh rules are in place to make sure that trustees stay on a straight and narrow path, as you right. pointed out. Beneficiaries have to force them sometimes to do that, obviously. Right. But the idea behind that is the court system knows the justice system knows that people will never care about someone else's money the same way they care about their own So the money. duties of what you have to do to manage that money are much higher That's right. and more conservative That's than right. it would be for your own money. That's right. And then, and then also one thing I found, even good people, and this is a sad part of human nature, I'm becoming jaded, uh, <laughs> even good people, when they see a lot of money sitting there, it's almost like the, cook, the, the monkey and the cookie jar getting their hand caught. Yeah. Um, 
it, it happens. You good people, maybe it starts with you know buying a gallon of milk because that's the only checking account they have with them that day when they go to get milk. Uh, maybe they take $100 cash when they're in Vegas out of the ATM card. Next thing you know, they're writing themselves checks for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, several hundred thousand dollars. And they were good people. There's, I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're good members of the community. They're not evil. They just... Yeah, got out of hand. Got out of hand. Got a lot of control. Yeah. I will say this, though, about new trustees is sometimes people get confused. Uh, a trust is not able to own assets in its own name. It only owns assets through the trustee. So if you have a real property, like if I have my real property, my home, and I gave it to you as my trustee, it then would say Stuart Albertson, comma, trustee Which of... Which I think is a fantastic idea. It's a terrible idea, but, <laughs> but since it's just hypothetical, I'm willing to go along with it. Um, Wait, a lot that, of, that's a normal trust, right? Yeah, right. But um, you have to ask my wife first. It's her house, too, so good luck. <laughs> the, uh, but a lot of times people get confused because they're like, my, the trustee's putting assets in his own name. No, no, they're, it's fine if they're putting it in their name as trustee. That, that they have to do. But if they're putting it in their own individual name, if you took the 50000 and you put it into an account that was just your name individually, that's a problem. Stuart Albertson is my sole and separate problem. Yeah, yeah that's, that you don't want to see. But Stuart <laughs> Albertson, comma, trustee of whatever right. the trust is, that's normal. That you do want to see, and that, that's typical. Right. So a lot of times people get confused because, like, the, the trustee's putting assets in their own name. Well, it depends on how they're titling it. As long as, a problem. as long as there's a comma trustee after it, chances are it's okay. Yeah, yeah, and then obviously they have to manage it properly, but that's a whole different ballgame. Right. The next question is, should successor trustees be notified of changes to the trust? Um, generally speaking, no. So, by and large, it depends on the type of trust you're talking about, but by and large, a revocable living trust can be uh, amended or changed in any way by the person who created it, and the successor trustee doesn't need to be notified. There's no requirement of that. And a lot of times, we'll have people call us who are children, and they'll say, I was a successor trustee, and I was a child of my parent, and I'm a beneficiary of the trust, and yet they modified the trust, and they never notified me. Well, they didn't have to. It's a private document. They can, you know, your parents can do all sorts of legal documents without ever notifying you at all if they don't want to. They can notify you, but they don't have, they're not obligated to. And so, by and large, you're not required to receive notice. You, I, I agree 100%. And, and I think the question is asking, obviously, while the set lawyers are still living, do they have to notify? And that's the other thing is, you know, as you pointed out, many times we have beneficiaries come in and say, I was the beneficiary of this trust, and when they changed it, they didn't tell me. Here's the same analysis, a successor trustee that's just named there as a successor who one day may take the position as trustee does not have to be notified of anything while the person is alive. Yeah. Once they passed away, I suppose if you file something in court as a current trustee and there's two or three successor trustees, perhaps they're supposed to get notice of that. Right. But that's after death. Yeah. And the reason why you don't have to notify a successor trustee is they might change, they might be taken out. And they don't, the successor trustee really doesn't have to know anything about the trust until it's their turn to act. And then they need to see the trust, and then they need to decide, am I going to agree to act as trustee? Because right. you can decline just because your name doesn't mean you have to act. That's right. So you have to agree to act, in fact. So, so that'll come later when the successor trustee is, is it's their turn. Final question, I'm sure applies to both successor trustees and regular trustees, how long should it take for the trustee to distribute assets? 
So we get that question. That's a loaded question. We get that question a lot, and, 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 yeah. and, and in a good lawyer fashion, it depends. And, and since we get paid by the word, it always depends. <laughs> uh, so there's three words. Um, it depends because some trusts uh, have a lot of money, some have a little, some have assets that need to be liquidated, others already have liquid cash on the date of death. Those are going to be much easier to administer. Some are tied up in lawsuits. Some are tied up in lawsuits. Sometimes there's a trust contest. Um, sometimes there's a, a, a lawsuit against the decedent uh, after they passed away, which then you know, that brings a whole host of procedural uh, landmines. A few of them have estate tax issues, although not as much anymore. But. So as a general rule, though, Keith, to give our clients' answers, we generally say a plain vanilla trust administration is probably going to be anywhere from a year to a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Anything more complex than that, you can easily see two or three years. Right. Yeah, and it really does depend on the complexity of the issue. I will tell you this, that if you're given a specific gift, if you're not paid within a year, it starts to earn interest under the probate code that's required. And so some of the smaller gifts should be done even before the year mark, in my opinion. But so much just depends on the circumstances. You can have one circumstance where they haven't distributed in three months and it's unreasonable, and another one where they haven't distributed in two years, but that's perfectly reasonable given what's going on in the trust. I'll tell you this, though. A lot of times people will call in and it'll be like five years of not distributing something that was sold three years ago. And it's a little bit late. Yeah, that, as soon as I hear that, that's usually a, a red flag of something's not right here. There's no reason to go that long. And then, of course, then you'll ask the questions like, well, are you in litigation? No. Was there any estate tax? No. You know, were there any of these other problems? No, no, no. And you're like, why are you waiting five years to distribute money? It makes no sense. And yet that happens, and it happens all too often. So trustees don't want to give up money because they're afraid they're going to do something wrong, I think. And once they give it up, they can't fix it. And so they want to hold on to it as long as they can. But trustees can make preliminary distributions, start getting some of the money out now, and then distribute a little bit more later, and then a little bit more later. And that's the other thing is it's not an all or nothing proposition. It's not like you have to wait 18 months and then give 100% of it. Well, that leads me to one final question. And that is, can you sue a trustee for not distributing the assets in a timely manner? And in addition to suing them for the distribution, are there any punitive damages that can be sought? There's no punitive damages that can be sought that I'm aware of. Are you aware of anything? No, the only thing I would go to there, and you can finish answering your question, would be if they somehow, the trustee took these assets for themselves, you possibly could get double damages under an 850 petition. But no, there's no punitive damages for this, unfortunately. Yeah, and that's a lot of times what happens is you'll you'll go, let's say you go too long, it's been five years, a million dollars should have been distributed, it wasn't, and people say, well, we want to sue the trustee because we haven't had this money for five years. Well, you can certainly go to court and the court is going to say, okay, distribute the million. You know, that, that'll be the remedy. The cure is get the money out. And maybe the court will award damages if the money wasn't invested properly or something like that. But the court's not going to award independent damages against the trustee for, for doing the wrong thing and keeping the money too long. There's no pain and suffering. There's generally no um, punitive damages. The, the cure, in the legal world, we call a remedy. The cure is to just make the distribution. And, you know, the court is going to kind of look at it as, well, five years is a long time, but on the other hand, you know, why didn't you come in two years ago? Right. That, that's on you, beneficiary. Well, the thing we've seen with this market, too, since 2008, the market has steadily grown over the last 10 decade. 
and, and maybe even a little over a decade, right? And so these trustees that waited and didn't make distributions, the values of the trust actually increased significantly. In a lot of cases. And so it's hard to come in and argue that they should be somehow surcharged because the assets grew. But even that is an investment issue. It's, it's you know, you didn't invest this properly. That would be the surcharge. That's right. And I think a lot of times people think, well, they breached their duties and they need to be punished or they need to pay some extra amount of money and right. damages. It doesn't work that way. Right. In trust law. Yeah. Is that all we have, Manisha? Yeah, that's it. All right. Well, very good. I want to thank you for joining another episode of Stand, Fight, Win live stream, Real Lawyers, Real Answers. You can find a recorded version of this video on YouTube and Facebook. And you can also check out our audio-only version of this on Podbean. And go to our website and you can find all of those resources along with all of our other videos that we put out on these topics. Stuart, thank you so much. Yeah, and we want to tell Kayla we missed her and we look forward to her getting back. And Venetia, you did a fantastic job. You did two jobs today. Thank you.